Welcome back to Farm to Tabor. This is part two of a two-part interview with Sadia Muzaffar at Tech Girl Canada. We're talking about how both agriculture and a lot of tech companies rely on large numbers of low-wage workers to make the business go. But not only are they low-paid and very low on job security, they don't even get recognized as being part of the picture. They're not really considered a real part of the tech or ag industries, even though, again, they're the whole reason these business models work. Both fields have a lot of the same mental gymnastics at play. Which is so, so similar to what's happening with, you know, the working class folks that are rendered invisible in, you know, tech economies right now. Yeah. Because those are also massively made up of people of color uh, with, you know, immigrants um, in a lot of the, the care service centered uh technology platform offerings it's women mm-hmm. um, and often women of color and and I think the 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 systems of you know keeping them invisible and therefore marginalized mm-hmm. are are very much in place and it's stunning to me that both these things and by both I mean you know agricultural sort of systems mm-hmm. and and this stuff is so similar yet there is no conversation like one of the the things that I'm really grateful about is how much you share about what is happening in that world. Because honestly, for me, as a city dweller working in tech, I have very little access to that. And I don't think that this is a coincidence. I think this like... Oh, it's high- 100% on purpose. Right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go ahead and finish your thought. Yeah, so I was just going to say that I think the first step of even, you know, reaching over and learning about this is is an endeavor because there are so many walls put in place. And I remember one of our conversations was um, a lot of the farmers who are doing things right, Mm -hmm. right. Who are actually putting in systems in place. There are checks and balances. They're not perfect, but they're, they're always headed in the right direction. They're open to being coached um, are not the people who would be on Twitter teaching other people, (laughs) right. They're, they're busy running their farms. And I think, it's very similar in a lot of um, big technology companies that are not in the PR game, that are not in, I wouldn't say not in the, the feudalism race because they all have, um, you know, those revenge fantasies embedded deep <laughs> in the cellular level. But I think that there are some that are less obsessed with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, those are not the headline grabbers, but they are, you know, the consistent, you know, 600 person, 1200 person workforce, you know, chugging away somewhere in the suburbs in, in a giant warehouse. But those are not the people who would be, you know, hired as speakers to come and coach because I think there is no appetite yeah. for doing that, right? It's the, the, the model of how these tech giants like Google and Amazon are you know, projecting, it's, it's more about conquest than anything else, which is so colonial that it blows my mind that people don't see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like going back to how, you know, agriculture is kind of shrouded from the commoners. <laughs> it's interesting because I think the number one thing you hear about, like, it, it, there's a lot of, Oh, people don't know where their food come from. You know, these ingrates, okay. Well, let's think about why that is, you know, (laughs) let's think about why that is. Um, 
the agriculture lobby and you know, there's a farm lobby and it's not just agribusiness. It works for family farmers too, um, has gone to great lengths to keep it that way. Um, I think ag gag laws are the number one example. A lot of states pass laws making it illegal to take pictures of farms, even just from the road. Seriously? Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> See, I'm learning. I'm learning even on a podcast that I'm a part of. Yeah, yeah. That, that may be a U.S. thing more than a Canada thing. So um, because what had happened was there were some incidents, you know, where like animal welfare activists would go work on a farm and they'd surreptitiously take pictures and then farms would get caught with their pants down and that just can't fucking be allowed, you know. And there are also issues where sometimes activists will fake footage, you know. Right. Um, so I think part of the ag gag law was not only to prevent footage, but also if there's footage, now you know it's fake. Um, but either way, the goal was to control the flow of information, right? Mm-hmm. And the way farms grow, like there's a lot of ways for farms to grow. When we talk about how um, rural communities are dying because farmers, are, you know, farms are getting bigger and bigger because of corporate interests, and that's just how they have to be, and that's why small communities are dying. That is absolutely not true. There are so many ways that farms can thrive without growing huge. You can intensify. Vegetable farms can build greenhouses. Uh, you can diversify. You can not have an entire county that only grows corn and soybeans. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many ways to do it. I think Holland is a fantastic example. Um, they're great at intensifying their agriculture and getting more and more yields and allowing farmers to thrive economically without having to gobble up land and kick a bunch of people off of it. We Which is super yeah. fascinating. Just as I'm just going to interrupt, just to say, I think this yeah. is super fascinating because a lot of the people that I, you know, look to for this analysis say the same thing about tech. Mm. Somewhere in the last twenty to thirty years, the whole venture capital culture, I would say, has taken over, and the mm-hmm. value of actually building a sustainable, solid foundation business that can stand on its own two feet. Mm-hmm. That 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 entire thing is missing from the mythology of building a successful business. So this is fascinating to me right? that the same thing exists in your world. It's almost like they both come out of the same culture. I don't know. It's so <laughs> close. I just can't. I can't quite put my finger on it. Right. Um, but yeah, like we have this mythology of how farming works and why farm communities are dying. And if you live in one, it is absolutely not true. There's so many choices made at the local and regional level. And it's not, I think like the liberal coastal elites are such an awesome whipping boy because they're not anywhere near you. And if the local landlords can keep all their neighbors worried about the liberal coastal elites, then they can keep popping all the rent checks and screwing their neighbors and no one will look at them the other way. Right. That's what's happening. Uh, <laughs> So there are so many ways for rural communities to develop and build an economy based on agriculture that don't depend on gobbling up land. We have just chosen as a series of rural communities not to explore those options. And we have this mythology of farming that just doesn't even take that into account. Because so many of us, I think, are not in rural areas, that the only information we get about it is what farmers say. Now, <laughs> what farmers, right? Like this is not even like a good representation of you know the twenty percent that yeah. are doing good work. Yeah, it's really just like the loudmouths who are shitty at farming, but great at talking. <laughs> <laughs> so same yeah. in tech, the same yeah. in tech. I think the the people who 
are the loudest sort of champions of this bro culture mm-hmm. are very few, but mm-hmm. they are so loud and mm-hmm. they, they get to be these channels of, you know, who gets to define this. And I think a lot of the privilege gets handed over uh, to literally people who are, you know, live down the street from one another and it's perpetuated that way. And it is, and I'm going to say it, it is the <laughs> laziest way. Yeah of doing this work because it it glamorizes all the shortcuts that that are actually poorly thought out like you can't even go one generation forward and the model will not hold like it will just crumble yeah and that that's the thing with agriculture is like there's only so much land out there so if you want to build sustainable communities you need to learn how to be more productive on the same piece of land and we've just never even chosen to go that route like to some extent, yes, but we're kind of like letting Monsanto do the work for us right. instead of having it be driven by farmers. What's actually going to do it in a way that lets farmers make money? And, um, you know, there's there's little institutes here and there, like Practical Farmers of Iowa does that type of work. But just the fact that there's so few and they're pretty isolated, um, I think kind of tells you like who's really controlling the show. And right. we really paint this picture like farmers are the victims and to some extent, yes, but also they helped build this. You know, I think in a lot of ways, the entire point of owning a farm and owning land, you know, that American dream mm-hmm. is we have this rhetoric of how like you're independent and you just like get to do your own thing. So, you know, we kind of have this term, fuck you money. Like if you have enough money to not have to have a job and not have to be uh, ingratiating yourself to other people, we say you have fuck you money. And the entire point of owning a farm was to have fuck you money. And right. if you have fuck you money, you're not supposed to worry about how to sell stuff or how to meet a market and da 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 da. So there's this whole culture built around farming where it's supposed to be about you and your lifestyle. And I'm just saying a lot of really mean things about farmers right now. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's not this, all farmers. Hashtag not all farmers. Yeah, like we have 20% of farmers or so who are like really knocking it out of the park and they're just clogged up with all these assholes. <laughs> and I feel so bad for them because we have farmers who are doing fantastic work. And they're really surrounded by this toxic culture. And a thing that I see is when you have a farmer who's really trying to do things right, like, you know, intensify their production, uh, add value, like do things differently in a way that's sustainable, they're ostracized by their communities. And in rural communities, like social capital is everything. You don't have a lot of emergency services. You don't have, you know, this side or the other thing. Your neighbors are your livelihood. And so when we have this toxic rural culture that ostracizes people for doing things differently, whether it's better or worse, we have a real problem. And I think that explains a lot of why farming is so fucked up is because of social pressure in rural communities. It is because of a culture. We need to stop blaming Monsanto for all of our problems. (laughs) It's, it's yeah. convenient though, right? Like it's, it's so the, the big bad boogeyman, which is very big and very bad. Yeah. Like there's no taking away from that. Yeah. But I think this brings us to, and it would be the perfect note to end on yeah. because you and I talk about this a lot. A lot of the, the redemption from this, mm-hmm. I think, and I'm still learning, there's so much for me to learn, um, lies with actually going back to, you know, the roots of how labor is organized, right? Yeah. So the working class, which is not, so we can cater to trying um, to reform, I would mm-hmm. say, in your world, farmers, in my world, you know, tech entrepreneurs, both in giant air quotes, because <laughs> those things are thrown around very um without checking but mm-hmm. I, I think that we can either spend 
efforts reforming them or we can organize the working sort of the the working class struggle Mm -hmm. which has always had you know the advantage that they've had is numbers Mm -hmm. right and i think that there is something really crucial that needs to happen in that realm that a lot of people don't have a good understanding about because they've not seen they've not been shown a model that works right yeah how does that how does that look in your world right now oh gosh um in terms of like worker organizing and kind of you know skewing like unskewing that power imbalance a little bit yeah so (laughs) there's a lot of attempts and uh my personal favorite that I don't think that would work, my favorite unworkable model is the third-party audit um, for sustainability because human trafficking and poor worker rights and everything are so easy to paper over that like third-party audits for food safety, I think they're fairly effective. They're not 100%, but they definitely do reduce outbreaks when they go into effect. But um, it's so easy to fake that everything's fine when it comes to workers because all you have to do is threaten them. And then when they're interviewed, they're like, oh, yeah, I love my job. <laughs> you know, right. it's great. The thing that I've seen that is effective is worker-based organizing. So there's a coalition of Immokalee workers. That was a group of tomato pickers down in South Florida. They were having straight up human trafficking. There were people being like locked in U-Haul trailers overnight and beaten if they didn't, you know, comply with workforce stuff. Tons of sexual assault. Um, so what this group of workers did was they organized and instead of telling the farmers, you negotiate with us, we're going to do things this way. They went right over the farmer's heads and they talked to retailers. They said, Hey, Wendy's, well, they're still working on Wednesdays. Hey, Burger King. Hey, Taco Bell. Um, only buy from farms that have signed an agreement with us. And that's how we're going to fix our worker stuff. And it took a long time for retailers to start signing these agreements. But once they did, dominoes started falling. Right. And I think Wendy's and Publix still haven't signed and they need to get the fuck on that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the the working conditions arrangements were really simple. It was pay us an extra penny a pound for tomatoes. I remember this. Yeah. And that's put millions of dollars back circulating in the economy. And no tomato farmers that I know of have gone under as a result. And, um, you know, some of that money is used to fund, you know, work organizing. They have hotlines if there's a problem. I <laughs> run into a few times when that needed to be called. And um, so as, as far as I know, it's been very, very successful. And I think it's because it was based on workers. It wasn't, you know, farms trying to look good. It wasn't processing trying to look good. It was directly based on the workers. So they actually have the power. Right. So in in my world, I and I'm learning so much about this from people like Jane McAlevey, who talks about the difference between mobilizing and organizing. So mobilizing mm-hmm. is everybody talking to people who are like minded, right? Mm-hmm. So it's um, getting out and protesting, which we've gotten really. I would say we've we've gotten really good at it, and also we're addicted to it somewhat. Yeah. But she talks about organizing in a different way. She says that's extending the tent. Right? So that's yeah. talking to people who are not already convinced. Mm-hmm. And all of this is very grassroots work. She's like, it's not the social media stuff. It's like talking people to people mm-hmm. and helping people understand that organizing in numbers can do wonders for them, which is you know an example of what you're doing. So I think tech is kind of teetering at the edge of making that jump, but I think not enough people, I think, understand that in tech. And this is like a 
literally a, a public education endeavor that needs to happen. And I think white men and white women particularly too, yeah. um, to get off of the high horse uh, <laughs> that they will lead everything because mm-hmm. that's always a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and get to, to learn how to be good followers because yeah. that's also a skill set, right? So like yeah. organizing. So I, I see, um, you know, signs of this kind of happening and it needs encouragement um, to go in the right direction and not become performative. But I'm really, really excited about the fact that people who are the working class, who are the Amazon warehouse workers, so recently there was a contingent, um, I believe they were all Somali, uh, they worked for Amazon and they got together and demanded better working conditions and they won. Good. Amazon is notoriously um, union-busting mm-hmm. um, record, like the rest of them. Um, they just get singled up because they're particularly bad uh, mm-hmm. in certain areas where the others are spending more on PR. Amazon doesn't. They're just muscling through this stuff. But even smaller examples of this need to be, uh, I think, absorbed a little bit by you know people who are higher up um the mm-hmm. the culture of you know how you were saying farmers think that you know they own this farm and this is their thing um and their entire identity depends on it tech workers are, are very similar to with not the working class but higher up yeah and i think the the mythology of that needs to kind of come crashing down yeah. uh, very soon uh, in order for people to, but it takes, like you need to set your ego aside, right? And mm-hmm. just realize that, you know, you are not an entrepreneur. You're also just a cog. The cog might be, you know, distributed and remote working, mm-hmm. but you're a cog. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some self-reflection uh, is needed on our end, but I see, you know, little signs of this happening, but I, I don't think that any kind of redemption will come from anywhere else. It literally has to come from the roots. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that is really evident in agriculture is, um, you know, like I said, the operations that are kind of woker tend to be more successful. Other things being equal, like, yes, there are nasty giants out there, um, (laughs) but they got that way by being huge. So they don't have to behave. They can kind of ride roughshod over their workers and get away with it because they have the ballast to do it. Um, you get a lot of your kind of, I don't want to say smaller, they're kind of medium sized, but like more nimble operations that actually integrate their workforce. Like they actually promote people of color into management and, you know, have them making decisions and they're empowered. And those farms just tend to be a lot more like muscular, I guess. Like, um, you know, it's like if you have core strength versus if you don't, these organizations can actually transfer their ideas into action very quickly they're just a lot more healthy and physically fit. I don't know of any other way to explain it. Um, you know, they're not calcified because you have people who have actually worked in the field, or at least they've had family that did that. Like that's the life they grew up with. They know how that works. They didn't kind of grow up in a more privileged way where they think manual labor means you drive a tractor for long hours. Right. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that is like, I fix equipment and drive tractors for long hours. Therefore I work hard. And you're like, Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so they have people running the company who understand that life. And, you know, I've run into Anglos who actually grew up in farm work and became farm owners. Like I met one guy like that and he built everything himself in one generation. And his farm was stupendous. Like you have that connection between the on-ground reality and the executive decision-making. And 
that guy was a rarity. I think by and large, really the only way to do that is obviously like promote your workers from within, train people from all the way at the bottom and bring them up. And like, you know, not to look good, actually put them in charge of things. Right. And your, your company will work differently because of that connection. Um, so, I mean, like you can't just have kind of a surface layer of people at the top, <laughs> you know, right. who have always it's been at the top yeah. yeah, and expect it to work the same way. Um, yeah, just in, in agriculture, it's really hard to fake stuff. Like if you're faking it, it's going to show. Um, so it's, there's a lot of truth tellers kind of built in. And so it's just really interesting to watch, uh, the success of companies that actually go the full distance versus those that don't. And I think it's harder in, you know, science and technology companies. It does come back to bite them. It mm-hmm. does. But I think the the time period is long enough where a lot of people have the convenience of forgetting, you know, mm-hmm. choosing to forget. Yeah. Um, and I think that it, it just needs to, the only way that reform, in quotes, will happen at the top is that when the liability of making these mistakes is unbearable. Like yeah. That's the only way, right? Yeah. So in your case, that's what you're saying. Like the liability of running a farm operation poorly is very high. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, I was kind of talking this with the Nightingales. It's just, you know, they're talking about agriculture versus tech. And it's especially as someone working in agriculture where our margins are very thin, um, it's funny because there's no margin for error in your operation, but at the same time, there are so many subsidies that a lot of places like just fail for decades or generations. So it's kind of an interesting like mishmash of so many consequences and yet often not that many consequences. But, you know, if something's not working, you can tell like it, it spits back in your face pretty quickly mm-hmm. and you can either choose to paper that over with outside help or not. But um, it's just really obvious if things aren't working. And in tech, like the consequences just aren't that immediate. They aren't that obvious. And everything is on fire. Yeah. Literally everything. Uh Uh-huh. All the time. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. No, that's the thing that I run into working with tech clients is I'll go in, I'll work with them. And you can kind of like feel the air in an operation. And an operation that's working in agriculture, that's clicking along like it's supposed to, has a certain feel to it. You know, everybody's busy. They're a little bit stressed, but it's the good kind of stressed. And then, and then there's on fire, which is like very, very bad in agriculture because if things are on fire in an operation with that low margins, like you're in big, big trouble. Right. So like, that's your way that, you know, an operation's about to go down is if it has that on fire feeling, but you go to tech startups and these (laughs) think that's normal. You can't tell them to do that. And and the thing is, our version of, I think, papering over is literally injection of capital over and over and over again mm-hmm. by people who are, you know, just like a generation ahead of them, made a whole bunch of money, aren't necessarily, you know, experienced in this. That's mm-hmm. our version of papering over. So all these terrible work conditions, mm-hmm. there is an absolute disconnect between people who are in charge of growing the company. And that's the other thing, the obsession with growing um, at the cost of everything. And, and and who is actually the model that they're working in, in a VC driven um, economy is they don't have time to pay attention uh, to this because they're out there courting people to give them more money. Right. Which is very different than running a good goddamn business. (laughs) Yeah. It's so different. I can't go into like huge amounts of detail here because, you know, NDAs and stuff, but, mm-hmm. you know, having seen some operations 
you know, particularly as tech extends into the food business, that's kind of where I get involved in things. So I've seen some tech businesses kind of go, you know what, expanding too fast before we have a good business model is deadly. Let's not do that. Let's like take some time to do things mm-hmm. right. And there's such different operations <laughs> than the ones who kind of follow the classic, the classic hockey stick model. Um, right. Cause that doesn't work so great with biology. And also when you have to train people, like if all you have to do is hire programmers, like, I guess you have to find rockstar programmers, but you can scale it pretty quickly. Like they're everywhere. Um, if you want to say scale a greenhouse business, you have to find a whole bunch of people who already know how to green or bleh. you have to find a whole bunch of people who already know how to grow in greenhouses. Good f-ing mm-hmm. luck because we don't have those in the United States. Um, they're very few and far between because our land and water are so cheap. We've never had to develop that industry. So the tech industry is trying to do it from scratch and they think you can hire greenhouse specialists. Like you can hire programmers and you can't. And it's hilarious to watch. That's, and there's a level of hubris there, right? Like they, yeah. they could be so different, but no, yeah. because they bring the same mindset, yeah. right? They're trying to hack it. Yeah. Because of course they are. Yeah. Well, and kind of the whole like reason for existence of the tech industry in this space is they're like, Oh, we're just going to automate everything. We'll just put in sensors for everything. And then you won't need these skilled people. And that's hilarious because what they do not realize is, you know, the, in the greenhouse industry, you know, you're, you're kind of talking like emerging of human and machine. You have to walk into your greenhouse and you're picking up on a lot of sensory cues that tell you what's going on. And we don't know what all of those sensory cues are. We just know some doesn't feel right. So it's almost like I actually was just talking with a greenhouse operator about this the other day, but it's almost like, you know, when you're watching a movie with a ton of CGI and you can just, you can just tell it's not real and you can't tell why it's not real. Like you no, you don't know what it is that makes it look fake, but it looks fake. Right. Right. Um, Because there are all these like tiny micro shadows and like vibrations and stuff that your senses pick up on. If there's something real that's happening that doesn't make it into CGI for whatever reason. You know, and maybe it will with a more advanced model, but, you know, the point is, like, we haven't figured out how to simulate it yet, right? Right. So there are all these micro cues you're drawing on to effectively run a greenhouse, and we don't know what those cues are yet. How the f*** are you supposed to program them into a robot? Thank you. Which is fascinating, (laughs) because this brings us to another favorite topic of um, ours, which is if we are really looking to automate labor, the easier one practically speaking, would not be the working class because Mm -hmm. they are doing all of this lateral thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Like a a lot of this processing in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. The easier one would be to actually automate management. Yeah. Um, And the economics of that would actually be better because they're always paid higher. So if we are are truly, truly committed to this cost-cutting model, Mm -hmm. which has its own problems, but if we take it at face value... I think automating managers probably makes more sense. Yeah. I think about this all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I've had so many jobs where I'm like, you know what? I would rather work for a robot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like you just program worker safety parameters and like realistic workload expectations and stuff into it. And it can't violate that. And life is great. Uh, Like I've had, I've had so many jobs where everything was fine. As long as the boss wasn't there, like we were actually getting shit done. And as soon as they showed up, (laughs) it's like, (laughs) yeah, as soon as they show up, everything falls to pot. Cause they're like, you know, you have to spend your time caring and feeding the boss instead of working. Uh, (laughs) I think about this all the time. Anyway. Um, 
but yeah, like it's, you know, we're talking about greenhouse stuff, especially, um, you know, we're talking about taking all these cues and putting them into an AI that can like do complex root cause analysis. Like that's what they're proposing. If they think they can replace workers, you know, complex root cause analysis, AI that can do lateral thinking. Um, and if you're confident that you can do that, you shouldn't be talking about replacing workers. You should be talking about replacing several layers of management. Right. So, but we and don't, that's yeah. just, just brings us back to the whole attitude of scorn towards, you know, the, the working class, because yeah. if anyone's going to change and pay the price, it would have to be that because mm-hmm. clearly it can't be anyone higher up in that food chain. Right. Yeah. If it were really about making money, we'd be replacing management because so many of the company's resources go into that. And that sounds like what, you know, the functions we're talking about AI, they can replace that. So if we have, if we think we have this AI that can replace very expensive management, but we're talking about using it to replace cheap workers, this is clearly not about money. Right. And yeah. Which brings us back full circle to where we started, <laughs> that we need to talk about the theories of power behind mm-hmm. why things are the way they are right now. Because if we don't understand that, we will never be able to dismantle it. It will always be this wild goose chase. Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding that that power dynamic uh, is key to coming up with a strategy of mm-hmm. keeping these things in check, of which there are many options. But if there is no theory of power, it's throwing shit on the wall and hoping <laughs> something sticks. Right. Not good. Not good heading into 2019. No. And I mean, just that theory of power versus money is so prominent in agriculture. I mean, we're talking about Japanese American incarceration, right? So you have this class of farmers that is clearly so much better than their peers, right? They're making 10 times the amount of productivity out of a piece of land of their neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to pick one piece of pe- like one set of people to throw in jail and get rid of as farmers, it would, shouldn't have been the Japanese Americans, right? Um, right. So this is, again, and this is actually a big part of why we had to do Victory Gardens was incarcerating all these really good farmers right as we were trying to mount a war effort and excuse me, war effort and build these food logistics supply chains to support the war effort. Um, it really destroyed our food supply chains actually. And um, that was such a huge part of us strategy was like, keep your troops well-fed so they can perform and they have good morale. And yet we destroyed our supply chain for racial reasons. And I think there's really no better example of how it's not about, it's not about money because the good farmers you put in jail and right. It's not even about power on the global scale. It was about exerting power within the U.S. and keeping nice things for a certain class of people. Like petty power. Yeah, like it was completely petty, you know? Right. Like we hurt our own selves. That's how petty we were, like that eager to grab land that we hurt our own selves. And it continues. It continues today with we're seeing with the anti-immigrant rhetoric Mm -hmm. and how much farmers who voted for this government, this Mm -hmm. current government in the U S are now, whoops, um, you know, our, our crops are going bad Mm -hmm. because there is nobody to pick them. Mm -hmm. I, I, I truly do not, I can't compute how those two things were not self-evident when this was happening, because I don't think that a lot of the people who are, doing this consolidation of power, whether in government or pseudo-government or in the private sector, they've never hidden what their agenda is. Mm -hmm. 
Like yeah. it's very much out there. So yeah. for people to not not connect the dots of oh, this is what it's going to mean for my livelihood, yeah, and still support it, it has to be this petty power thing. It has yeah. to be because in in the money world, that makes no sense. Yeah, but, but so true. But it's so true, and this is why I was saying I think that it's it will take a lot of putting egos aside. Um, and actually contending with our history, which is also a really nice, you know, circle back to where we started, which is this has happened before. Mm-hmm. Whatever is happening right now, we have, you know, several timelines that we can look at and see without a shadow of doubt that this is bad. Where we're headed is bad. Mm-hmm. And we don't want this. The only thing required of us is to make that effort of actually taking our head out of the sand um, where it's being put and challenging those narratives and, and connecting across. Right. So when you and I talk, I, I I think that the similarities now at this point, it's almost blurry where tech sort of starts and egg, you know, ends and the other way around. Yeah. This needs to happen a lot more because there is so much, that we can learn from each other and like leapfrog in terms of building out this model and seeing strategically where to strike to make it better, um, that we can't afford not to do this. So thank you for the work that you do. Yes, Sadia, thank you. There is so much to unpack here and we could probably do this forever. 10 out of 10, we'll unpack again. I guess maybe one big takeaway for me right now is agriculture and tech share a lot of the same myth-making. There's this aura of an independent person goes out and they farm or they work in their garage and they make something wonderful and they did it all themselves and something something independence miracle of the human spirit. But in both tech and agriculture, there's actually a ridiculous amount of government support and failure and exploitation that everybody just forgets about that builds those few successes. That story of the solo independent pioneer is told to make you forget about all that other stuff. It sounds so good and it feels so good. And now that our myth-making about agriculture has taught us to love stories about pioneers, when we hear it now from tech myth-making, we just go for it. But it was just marketing 400 years ago, and it's still just marketing now. So again, it's interesting. It's such an established story now that Whenever I hear someone telling it about themselves, you know, I'm a pioneer, I'm solo, I'm independent, my ears perk up and I go, ah, I wonder what they're trying to make us forget. Which is kind of sad and horribly cynical. But also, we do live in a world where hijacking emotions that we have for honest reasons and turning them into money is a huge business. And to live in this world, we have to be literate about how that's done. So again, so many thanks to Sadia for bringing in some really great insights and stories. You can find her on Twitter at at this tech girl, all one word, and her hub, Tech Girls Canada and Tech Reset Canada. You can follow Farm to Tabor on iTunes or SoundCloud, and you can find us on Patreon for bonus content, including an extended cut of this interview with some extras. And thanks so much for listening.